0: In a sociology class, a test was given out to the students. And that test was a packet of about 10 pages, and on the first page were a group of instructions. It was to be a time test that had to be done in a certain period um, designated, and also those who would accomplish the task the fastest would be given. Uh, extra credit for the course. So at the appropriate time, the instructor told the students to flip the test over and to accomplish it as quickly as possible. First page was a page of instructions, 20 different instructions that were given as to how to proceed through the test. And the first question or statement in the instructions was, Please read every direction carefully before you begin. And then the second statement was make sure you put your name on every page and et cetera down through a list of all things to do. And students were feverishly trying to accomplish all that was requested of this timed examination And when you got to the last statement, statement number 20 in the directions, it said, please ignore directions 2 through 19. Sign your page at the top and turn in your examination. The point that this professor was trying to make in the sociology class is that People fall into patterns. And typically, what he was trying to say is, most people don't follow directions. And in particular, women tend to follow directions more than men. Because feverishly trying to get things done, everybody was scrambling to do the math questions or the appropriate things that they were being told to do in the booklet when the reality was, Read the directions. Follow the directions. Don't do anything in the examination. Just put your name at the top of the first page. Now, I'd like to debate whether or not women follow directions better than men. (laughs) But that was the point the professor was trying to make in this class. But it is true. We often, when we know we're under pressure and want to get things done, we don't always read the directions all the way through. We just start with the ones that we think we need to do rather than all of them. Now that may be somewhat humorous. It might be detrimental to a grade in a class. But the same is true when it comes to worshiping God. How important it is for us to follow directions. And how ludicrous for individuals to say, well, it really doesn't matter what you believe or what you do, as long as you're sincere. The Bible is full of examples of the fact that doing the right thing the wrong way is detrimental. We have two young boys, Cain and Abel. They both were doing the right thing they were offering sacrifice to god abel was re- uh, accepted cain was rejected and the writer of hebrews tells us it's because a very important ingredient wasn't included in abel's or excuse me cain's offering faith without faith you can't please god and you find david so desperately wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And God had given specific directions. How is the Ark to be transported? On the shoulders of the priests. And in the midst of transporting it, the way the Philistines had done, by placing the Ark in a cart... As they're making their way up towards Jerusalem, over a rocky terrain, the cart moved violently. The ark began to tilt as if it would fall off of the cart. And a man by the name of Uzzah tried to steady the ark so it wouldn't fall to the ground. What happened? Uzzah was struck dead. What I need to understand is when it comes to worshiping God, when it comes to uh, expressing my devotion to the Lord, I need to follow God's directions. It was very clear in the Old Testament, God didn't say they could come to him in any form or fashion. He designed the tabernacle and then the temple for the way in which the people of God would corporately come or individually come to worship him. And in the same way, we find God gives us instructions on how it is we're to worship him. And we've been looking at this section for us in Acts chapter 2, where Luke, the author of this, his second letter that he wrote to Theophilus, describes the beginning of the church and how God is working through the church. Remember what Jesus said he would be doing? I will build my church. And here it is being established by God and built by God. And in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, we read, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, in the book of Acts, we find that Luke is recording for us This transition of God's focus from the nation of Israel to the church doesn't mean he's done with Israel. He's going to restore that focus to the nation of Israel in the future to fulfill all that he had promised. But at this period of time, as the new covenant is being established, it is going to be established, inaugurated initially through that entity called the church. And as we look at what we've commonly referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, what we find in the book of Acts is that Paul, uh, excuse me, Luke really only focuses on the Acts of two apostles. And the first part of the book of Acts is focusing on the apostle to the Jews. And who was that? Peter. And the rest of the book of Acts focuses on the apostle to the Gentiles. Who would that be? Paul. And what you will find is that Luke confirms that God was working through both by using the same type of experiences in Peter's life and in Paul's life as a vindication that God was working through them to build the church. And it was all based on the fact that the Lord had made it very clear that this work of building the church would start in Jerusalem and Judea. It would move into Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here we are in the book of Acts seeing how Jesus Christ is continuing to work through his people to establish the church. And as we look at the statement that is made, I highlighted for you that Luke has a literary device where he will periodically give a summation as to what is going on and why it is taking place. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to the end, 47, he is giving us one of those summations as to what is happening with the inauguration of the church on the day of Pentecost. And who are these individuals? These that he says continued steadfastly or they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Well, that was not only the uh, apostles' Not only that 120 individuals that made up that initial group, but it says the Lord added to their number 3,000. So these were devout Jews who had come to Jerusalem on Pentecost in order to worship the Lord, who had heard the message of Peter, and in the process of that, God giving them understanding, and they responded to the message of Peter. And instead of being identified with the nation, that was under the sentence of judgment, they identified themselves with this new entity called the church. As we look at this, the perspective that these individuals had was the first and foremost that Jesus Christ fulfills what the Old Testament had said would be true of the coming Messiah. These were individuals who comprehended that their safety, their salvation, their sense of well-being was found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Now that's the same for us today, isn't it? If I'm acceptable to God, if I'm the object of his good pleasure rather than awaiting his coming judgment, my place of safety is only in Jesus Christ. And so they were identifying with the one that the nation had rejected. It was also that these were individuals who recognized that this salvation that God was accomplishing was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had taught and with the confirmation of the new covenant blessings that he was pouring out. They questioned why the apostles in particular were able to speak in the languages um, of a variety of Individuals who had gathered without ever having been taught those languages. And Peter makes it very clear that it was fulfilling what the Old Testament had taught. I think it's also of significance to recognize that not only did they see Jesus as the only one of salvation, that the apostles were God's spokesmen whom he had confirmed, but also that the entity in which they needed to be involved in is what you and I think of as the church. That the church was the primary place of God's work and God's blessing for his people today. Now, how is it that we correspond to them? Well, it's important for us to remember that we are likewise New Testament Believers, your background, my background may not be uh, Orthodox Judaism, but the reality is, be it Jew or Gentile, if I am trusting in Christ, then I too can identify with what is happening here. And I say that because of this correspondence that I have with them to realize that while God does not give specific directions to say this is how it should be done, there is a rule in scripture of first reference. And when something is given its first reference, it sets the stage or the pattern that is to be followed. And what we find is that these early believers saw four critical things for their well-being and the healthiness of the church. And what were those four key things? They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, as we look at it, there may be cultural differences, There might be distinctions throughout history that are more of a pattern of that group of people at that given time, but if I am following God's directions, if I'm doing it God's way for a healthy church, local church, for the well-being of my own life, then there are four critical factors that need to be true of any gathering of God's people. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And as we think of these individuals, notice it wasn't just a sideline on their life experience. They were continually devoting themselves. The Greek term is one that they persevered in it. They persisted in it. They held on to it. They were devoted to the local church as God's entity for the well-being of his people and the glory of his name. Now, as I mentioned in our previous study, we need to be sure we get away from the Western concept that the church is a building or the church is a denomination or the, per, the, the church is an organization. The reality is I do not attend church. I don't go to church. I am the church. I'm part of it. I'm a member of it. And the church is either gathered as we are gathering together here. Or the church is scattered in different individual locations. But the church remains the church wherever it might find itself. And what I need to recognize is that this entity, known as the body of Christ, this spiritual organism, the church, is something of which I am an integral part And as we had seen in the book of Ephesians, designed by God where I make a contribution for the well-being and the proper functioning of all of the church, and the church is likewise building me up in love. And I am an individual that is involved in this great and glorious work that God is doing. So these key factors focus on What God is really saying is essential for the well-being of his people, whether it is the early church established by the apostles or throughout history even into our own day of the things that are essential. And what we need to recognize is that for the church to be healthy, for the church to be functioning the way God designed, it's important that we have the apostolic teaching. It's important that we have fellowship. It's important that we have the breaking of bread. It's important that we have prayer. Other factors may be included in the programs that a given church may design and structure for those who attend that fellowship, but never to the exclusion or to the diminishing of what God says is most essential for the well-being of his people. So we should scratch our heads and question when the word of God no longer has a place of primacy in any gathering of God's people. Because out of the four, what does he put first? The apostles' teaching. It should also impress us that he groups these four things together and as if they are two couplets. It is the apostles' teaching and fellowship. It is the breaking of bread and prayer. And so of the four, there is the recognition that two of them are grouped together, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, which has to do with the things that are structured for the function of the church, our involvement in it, our growth in it, and our well-being. And then the breaking of bread and prayer, which has to do with our expression of worship and remembrance and glorification of the Lord. I think it's also important for us to see that it begins with God speaking to us. Isn't that true of whether it be Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, whether you and I look at the writings of the New Testament that have been preserved for us today? If we're continuing in the apostles' teaching, obviously the foundation upon which the church is built, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, when we start looking at the messages of Paul. We start looking at the letters of Peter. We look at the instruction of the writer of Hebrews. We look at what the gospel writers have included. What do I need to remember? It's all red letter. Now, you know why I said that. Because we want to take some parts of the Bible and put that in red letters because it's God speaking. Well, the reality is, From the first word of the book of Matthew to the last word of the book of Revelation, it's all God speaking. And now I'm looking at the apostles' teaching, not because I'm enamored with Paul or Peter or any of the other New Testament authors, but the recognition that God is speaking through these individuals without violating their unique personalities, but so superintending their thoughts as they are being expressed. So in its most minute detail, what I have in my possession is the word of God. And so the beginning of our growth in Christ, our gathering together, has to be God speaking to us. And then what's the last thing he includes? Prayer. It's our speaking to God. For while we enjoy getting together with one another and we learn the new things that have been happening in one another's lives and we build those relationships with one another, the real person that we came to worship and adore is not one another. It's God himself. And that's prayer. So the apostles' teaching, it's God speaking to us. Prayer, it's us speaking to God. It's communicating the things on our heart to our great and wonderful God. I also think it's no accident of the order in which God superintended Luke to place these different things. It's out of the word of God that all else flows. And so they were devoted to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So how about each of them? What is it that we can learn about them, and why are they so relevant? Well, the first, the apostle's teaching. Uh, It's the Greek word which could be translated doctrine. It is the prescribed things that you and I need to know and understand, Isn't that what Jesus even indicated in the directions that he gave to the apostles when they were with him in Galilee and recorded for us at the end of the book of Matthew? When he said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, therefore go into all the nations, making disciples, how? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey whatsoever things I've commanded you. As we look at the apostles' teaching, it was the instruction that Jesus Christ had for his people. And as we look at the New Testament, we see the emphasis that is there. And the first is the apostles said very little about themselves and said an awful lot about their wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, to me, is no accident either, and it's a pattern for us to remember. I think of the words that were recorded for us about John the Baptist as individuals began turning from him and beginning to follow Christ. Do you remember what he said? He must increase and I must decrease. And when we gather together, what we really need to hear a lot of is Jesus Christ Christ we need to see the grandeur and the glory of our God and not so much of ourselves. And as we look at this reality of the teachings of the apostles, they not only laid down for us the things that were pertinent to the New Testament or New Covenant, the things that God was inaugurating through the death, the resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to provide us with a greater understanding of just how great is our God. I read the scriptures because in them, God is disclosing himself and showing me more of what he is like. I also read the scriptures because in them, God provides me with an understanding of what's essential and beneficial in my daily life. But most importantly, I read in them because that's what transforms and changes me more and more into the image of Christ through the work of the Spirit of God. Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, what did he say to them? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to the age in which you live, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that perfect good will of God. It's the recognition that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God To involve this transfer or to accomplish this transformation process within me. If I go to that great um, psalm on the Word of God itself, Psalm 119, I mean, it just begins with the fact that the Word of God, hidden in the heart of God's people, is beneficial for how I think and act each day, isn't it? The psalmist said, How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word. Your word have I hidden in my heart for what intended result? That I might not sin against thee. And throughout the psalm, the psalmist is praying and petitioning God that he would give him understanding, he would cause him to see the grandeur of God, he would be led in the paths of righteousness for the sake of the Lord. The word of God is essential for the well-being of God's people. It's what the Spirit of God uses to show us more of the character of our God, the glories that are true of Christ and what he has done for his people, and to cause us to be walking in the way that pleases him. But what else does the Word of God do for you? See, Luther would say, if I would neglect the Word of God for a single day... I would lose some of the joy of my salvation. He also made a comment about needing to be sure he was praying each day. But here we start with the Word of God. Why would he say that, that I'd lose some of the joy of my salvation? Psalm uh, Psalm 19. What does the Word do? It rejoices the heart, it makes wise the simple. It becomes that which encourages God's people as they go through the difficulties of life. It provides hope and encouragement in some of the most hopeless circumstances in which God's people ever find themselves. And so the early church, they tenaciously held on to the apostles' teaching that they would better know their God, understand what he is doing, and see that transforming work of God's spirit within them. The second thing it says, they continued in fellowship. Now what we need to remember is this word fellowship really has as its basic meaning uh, something that is shared in common. Uh, koinonia is the term. Uh, when we think of the New Testament, we find that it was written in Koine Greek, which was the origin, that form of Greek was originated by Alexander. It was a dumbed-down form of the Greek language. It was to become the common language of all the people, so when Alexander said jump, they could respond with how high. And so the New Testament was written in the common Greek language that was known throughout that part of the world. That's the foundation for the word koinonia that is translated often in our Bibles, but not always, as fellowship. It is a word which really means a shared partnership, something that is held in common. And today when we think of having fellowship, we usually put it with some type of social event that the church participates in. But the real idea of fellowship is something much deeper and stronger than just a social event had by God's people. It is the involvement of God's people in the lives of one another... Because of the relationship that they share with other individuals who have this common interest and mutual participation in one another's lives. And so how is it described in the book of Acts? What's mine is yours. And what's yours is mine to where they would demonstrate the love of God and caring for God's people so it could be said of the early church, no one suffered need within the church body. It's the fact that they have this mutual love and partnership with one another, that they are moved with what can I do to benefit and help the individual of whom I am in a covenant relationship. And so we can look at how John describes it in 1 John, where he says, Well, you say that you love God. Well, how can you love God whom you haven't seen when you don't love your brother whom you do see? And how is it you know your brother, you, that you love your brother whom you do see? Well, when you see your brother in need, you don't just say, Well, I'll pray for you. God bless you. But you share with that individual to help his need. There's biblical fellowship. It's the common bond that we have in Christ and the fact that as the members of the body of Christ, when one member suffers, what happens? We all suffer because we're in this partnership, this relationship. And when one member of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices together. How often we see that when we've been praying for someone, God answers prayer. We're overcome with joy to see how God worked on behalf of that individual for whom we had been praying. Why is it? Because we have koinonia. We have fellowship. We have partnership. We have relationship with one another in the covenant community. That is the new covenant, the New Testament community, the church. And so it's much more than just, well, let's plan some social events that we can get together and enjoy one another's company. Biblical fellowship is the fact that I'm committed to, I'm devoted to the well-being of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I am involved in their lives in ways I am asking God to help me enrich and benefit them and the early church flowing out of being founded in the apostles' teaching, had a common concern for the well-being of one another in the body of Christ. The third thing that Luke indicates was essential and important for the local church was the breaking of bread. As we look at this term, breaking of bread, we find that it's uniquely to the writings of Luke. And what it refers to is what in other places is usually mentioned as the Lord's table. But with the Lord's table, it was true that the early church would share a meal together. And so the breaking of bread had to do with a common meal that they would partake of together, culminating with the remembrance of the Lord. Now, initially, as we look at the early chapters of Acts, it was a daily occurrence on the part of the church. They would gather together each evening with one another. They'd share a common meal, and they'd culminate with the uh, Lord's table, as we would know it today. We find later in the book of Acts, and we come to the time of Paul's ministry, it became something associated with their corporate worship on the Lord's day, which would be the day in which Christ arose or the first day of the week in which they would honor the reality of the resurrected Christ. And so as an important part of their worship, they would culminate with remembering Him, And the breaking of bread had to do with the single loaf that identified them as members of the body of Christ and the cup, which was the new covenant in his blood. I think there are two important things for us to recognize in the breaking of bread that was beneficial for that early church and beneficial for us as well. And the first and of most importance is why are we here? The reason we're here is because of Jesus Christ. It's not any merit, any value of our own. It's that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am an object of his grace, and I am remembering him. It is a testament, a memorial to the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ for my well-being. And the second important part of this breaking of bread and gathering together in what we think of as the Lord's table is to express the unity that we have in the body of Christ. Paul gives lengthy instruction about the Lord's table in the book of 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. And he says, when you get together for the Lord's table, I'm not going to commend you because you're not eating the Lord's table. They had their common meal together. They broke that single loaf together. They had the cup as the new covenant in Christ's blood. But even though the elements were there, And they were going through the process. They weren't partaking of the Lord's Supper. They weren't partaking of the Lord's Table. Why? Because they failed to honor and recognize unity that exists in the body of Christ. He tells them they need to examine themselves. And it started with a meal. And what did they do? Well, the wealthy of the congregation got there earlier and they ate all of their goody treats. Those who worked as servants in others' homes came in later. Most of the meal was already over and all they got were the scraps or still went hungry. And and Paul makes it very clear, you need to be waiting for one another. And the second is, They didn't give the right kind of honor to one another. They didn't judge the body, the local church, correctly because they ate condemnation to themselves. Because as hypocrites, they kept saying, we are one in the Lord. And the reality was there were factions and divisions And therefore, God judged them. Some had died, sin unto death. Some were sick. Some had no spiritual vitality. They were weak. And Paul said if we judge ourselves correctly, we won't be disciplined or judged by the Lord. The importance of breaking bread together is it first and foremost causes us to recognize there's only one reason that I'm acceptable to God and I am part of this community called the church. And it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with Jesus Christ. And the second is that God has put us together in the body with all of our little differences with all of our idiosyncrasies and designed for us as members of the body of Christ to preserve the unity of the faith. And gathering around the Lord's table says there's one body, there's one cup, there is unity in the body of Christ. And I need to be sure that I am being genuine when I partake and not at odds with a member of the body. And then finally, to the prayers, it says, literally. Now, if I think of the early church, there's a realization. What did Peter and John do about uh, three or four in the afternoon? They didn't go have high tea. They went to the temple to pray. Because in their Jewish culture and in that Jewish background, when the morning and the evening sacrifices were being offered, it was the time for prayer. And they would participate in prayers. And so the early church would keep following that pattern. In fact, there are some indications coming from the book of Psalms where it said three times a day I will order my prayer before you, which had to do with early morning, late at night, and also at noonday but it became more than just following the pattern that was true of their Jewish background and culture. It was the fact that cultivating that communion with God was of utmost importance for the well-being of the corporate body and the individual members. We just go a couple chapters later and we find that the apostles are being told you're not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they come back and they report it to the church. And what does the church do? It has a prayer meeting. And all the church gathers together. And it what amazes me in the prayer of the early church, I think it's in chapter 4 if you want to look at it, they don't say, God, take away the problem. Instead they say, these things are all happening because just like with our Savior, according to your will, these things took place and now the nations are raging just like you had said they would do against the Lord and against his Christ. So give us boldness. Give us the spiritual fortitude to stand against them. Give us the kind of witnesses that lets the people around us know that our God is the one true God and that he is Lord and sovereign over all. And the outcome was, and with great boldness, they began speaking about Jesus. Again, to go to Luther, and he said that if I would neglect prayer for a single day, I would lose the fervor of my devotion to my Lord and his work. Prayer is essential. It isn't because God needs to know something that we need, but it's the recognition that as we dev- devote ourselves to the Lord in prayer, we become more aware of just how great and sufficient he is. That we can cast all of our cares upon Him because He genuinely cares for us. It's because that as we wait upon the Lord, we renew our strength. We find a resource in our God that enables us to cope with the things that come. And the consequences that come from this are the first that we have a proper respect and reverence for God. Isn't that what it says? Look at verse 43. And they kept feeling a sense of what? Awe. They were amazed at just how majestic was God and all that he was doing for them. They cultivated their relationship, the koinonia, with one another. And they... Those who believe, verse 44, they were together. They had all things in common. In other words, they were involved in one another's lives, not in a busybody way, but in a way to provide for their well-being. And then it says that these individuals had their meals together, verse 46 at the end, with gladness. Verse 47... They were praising God. And so these were individuals that didn't have to go to some sort of corporate gathering to get themselves pumped up, to be inspired, to go through the next day, but they had an inner strength and an inner fortitude that manifested itself throughout their being. And God gave them favor with all the people. we're going to do God's work, we need to do it his way. If we're going to be a New Testament church and have a healthiness to how we experience our relationship with one another and our worship of God, we need to follow the directions. And the directions are very clear that we need to recognize that God has provided for us some essential things that are for our well-being and for the healthiness of a local church. The Word of God, the Apostles' Doctrine. The ways in which we can demonstrate our love for God by the love and care that we have for one another, fellowship. For the fact that it has to be central, Christ-centered, A Christ-centered form of existence, breaking bread, remembering him, the unity that we have in Christ. And then our humble devotion and our dependence upon the Lord. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. It is through prayer that we see more of how great is our God and how sufficient he is for our daily life and for whatever may come. May God cause us to be wise people who follow the directions instead of scrambling around for the thing that hits us at the moment and failing to really see what's most important. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth, and I pray that you would give us understanding in that truth Most importantly, that our lives would truly be a diadem of praise to you and honoring of your great name, because you have so designed that in doing so, it is also for our good and our well-being. We ask this now in the name of the one who is worthy, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.